0: Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Wednesday, May thirteenth, 2020. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, new XPS laptops, new Fire HD tablets, Facebook is compensating content moderators, how the pandemic has affected clothes shopping, and how the aftermath of the pandemic may affect offices in the sense of, will we actually ever go back to offices? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Dell has announced new XPS 17 and XPS 15 laptops redesigned with new 16 to 10 ratioed edge to edge displays, USB-C ports exclusively, and Intel's 10th generation CPUs. All of this starting at $1,300 and $1,500 respectively, quoting The Verge. The new XPS 15 design is the most significant update in nearly five years with a bigger 16 by 10, 15.6 inch display, Intel's latest 10th generation processors, and even models with Nvidia's GeForce GTX 1650 Ti Max Q graphics inside. The new 15.6-inch display trims the bezels down on all sides and drops the ugly bottom chin bezel that has plagued the XPS lineup in recent years. It also enables the XPS 15 to support a 16 to 10 aspect ratio just like Dell did with the XPS 13 earlier this year. You can pick between a more than 4K display or a regular FHD display, and both include a tiny top-mounted webcam. You'll also be able to configure the XPS 15 with up to Intel's Core i9 45-watt chip and 64 GB of RAM, as well as 2 terabytes of storage. Dell is also including two USB-C Thunderbolt 3 ports a regular USB-C 3.1 port, and a full-size SD card reader. Much like the XPS 13, Dell is ditching legacy ports like USB-A and HDMI in favor of USB-C. These port changes do mean the XPS 15 now has a thinner profile at 18mm high, and Dell is promising the longest battery life of any 15-inch laptop, with up to 25 hours on the FHD display model. Dell's updated XPS 15 starts shipping today, priced at $1,299.99. Alongside the updated XPS 15, Dell is reintroducing its bigger XPS 17. It's been nearly 10 years since we've seen an XPS 17, and as the name implies, it's the larger 17-inch member of the XPS family. Dell describes the XPS 17 as its most powerful XPS laptop ever, and the company has certainly managed to squeeze a lot into a relatively small package for a 17-inch laptop. Quote, the XPS 17 is the smallest 17-inch laptop on the planet, claims Donny Oliphant, Dell's marketing director of XPS products. It's even designed to be smaller than nearly 50% of all 15-inch laptops that exist in the market today, end quote. The XPS 17, however, will only be available later this summer. And also, Amazon has updated the Fire HD 8 tablet with a faster processor, more RAM, more storage, and USB-C ports as well. Interesting though, It's also upgraded the price a bit, with the base model increasing in cost slightly to $89.99. I actually couldn't remember if I had ever covered a Fire HD update before, and indeed, at least with the 8 lineup, it's been several years since it's been updated. And the 8, if you'll recall, is the low end of the lineup. But it has been refreshed now, so if you're a fan, this is welcome news. Though, if you were hoping for a major refresh, this apparently is not that. Quoting The Verge. The display is unfortunately still the same, with an 8-inch 1280x800 panel, and battery life is still estimated at around 12 hours, although you'll be able to charge it faster thanks to the addition of USB-C. All told, it's a similar set of upgrades to the improvements on last year's Fire HD 10, which also was overhauled with better specs and USB-C charging. Those upgrades come at a price, though. The base model will now start at $89.99 instead of $79.99, although Amazon will be offering a limited-time two-pack bundle for $159.99. Along with the standard Fire HD 8, though, there are two new models, the Fire HD 8 Plus, which... At $109.99, costs $20 more than the regular version, but ups the RAM to 3 gigabytes, adds Qi wireless charging, and includes a faster 9-watt charger in the box and six months of Kindle Unlimited Service. End quote. There's also the popular and useful Kids Edition coming in at $139.99 for the exact same hardware, but also coming with that kid-proof case, which is basically a necessity if you're buying a tablet for kids. You can pre-order all of this today with shipping coming June 3rd. Facebook is set to pay $52 million to settle with 11,250 of its content moderators. The settlement will be compensation for the mental health issues those moderators have developed on the job. Quoting Casey Newton, who basically broke and has owned this story from the very beginning, In a preliminary settlement filed on Friday in San Mateo Superior Court, the social network agreed to pay damages to American moderators and provide more counseling to them while they work. Each moderator will receive a minimum of $1,000 and will be eligible for additional compensation if they are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or related conditions. The settlement covers 11,250 moderators, and lawyers in the case believe that as many as half of them will be eligible for extra pay related to mental health issues associated with their time working for Facebook, including depression and addiction. In September 2018, former Facebook moderator Selena Scola sued Facebook, alleging that she developed PTSD after being placed in a role that required her to regularly view photos and images of rape, murder, and suicide. Scola developed symptoms of PTSD After nine months on the job, the complaint, which was ultimately joined by several other former Facebook moderators working in four states, alleged that Facebook had failed to provide them with a safe workplace. Scola was part of a wave of moderators hired in the aftermath of the 2016 U.S. presidential election when Facebook was criticized for failing to remove harmful content from the platform. The company hired several large consulting firms, including Accenture, Cognizant, Genpact, and Pro Unlimited, to bring on thousands of contractors in the United States to do the job, end quote. For years, one of the big questions in the podcasting industry has been if, when, or how Apple would get into podcasting in a big way. Apple, of course, has basically owned the podcasting industry for years now, but in a completely hands off, benign neglect sort of way. But anytime they decide to do their own podcasts in a significant way or monetize the industry in a significant way, they could basically transform how things are being done overnight. Well, this is not that, but maybe this is sort of a side doorway for Apple to dip its toe into what is essentially podcasting. Sources are telling Digiday that Apple is asking publishers who are already participating in Apple News Plus for permission to produce audio versions of their news stories, with Apple handling the audio production costs of such an arrangement. Quote, "...the option of listening to stories on Apple News Plus fits into a recent trend of publishers offering audio versions of their stories on their own properties, such as their websites or within their mobile apps." Sources at two publishers said Apple initially wanted permission to produce audio versions of whatever story they thought might be a good fit for the audience. Those two sources said that now they will pitch pieces to Apple partly to avoid any roadblocks relating to intellectual property. Some of the content that appears in Apple News and Apple News Plus has been produced by freelance writers, and freelancer contracts typically do not allow publishers or third parties like Apple to reuse stories without consent or additional compensation." Even with Apple handling most of the heavy lifting, several publishers regard the plans skeptically, three sources said. One said it has not seen evidence that Apple News' audience will want to listen to audio versions of their stories, and a second worried that if Apple emphasizes audio for News+, Plus, it could further skew the picture of who gets compensated. Listening to a story, after all, takes longer than reading one. All the publishers who are part of Texture are going to get into an arms race, said a source at one publisher. That's heard Apple's pitch. There is no firm timeline for when the audio versions of stories will launch, two sources said, end quote. Now, the reference there to how long a story takes to be listened to is reference to the fact that Apple pays out 50% of the Apple News Plus revenue to each publisher based on time spent with a given publisher's content. And obviously, this is not podcasting as we understand it. But that would be in line with a lot of the experimenting going on in podcasting lately, which is in line with subscription audio content these days. For example, see Ben Thompson and John Gruber's announcement last week of their new Dithering show. Love, love, love Yahoo Finance. Use it every day to research companies we talk about on the show. Heck, I used it constantly when I was writing the book to look at the historical performance of dot-com companies. But when I'm working on my own portfolio, it's also the auto-complete in my browser, yahoofinance.com. They are the number one finance destination. Producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. And when you use it for your personal investing tool, like I do, you can securely link your brokerage accounts to it for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. Think of it as an observability dashboard, but for your finances, with a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? That's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. constantcontact.com. Some more interesting COVID-19-related data surrounding the economy, this time from Adobe, which estimates that U.S. e-commerce sales rose 49% in April, at least compared to early March, led by online grocery, which was up 110%, book sales, which doubled, and sales of electronics, which rose 58%, quoting TechCrunch. The data comes from Adobe's Index of the Digital Economy, which analyzes more than one trillion online transactions across 100 million different SKUs. The company works with 80 of the top 100 U.S. online retailers to gather its data. The numbers indicate that consumers are willing to spend on products that will help them manage the COVID-19 crisis. This includes, in large part, online grocery pickup and delivery. Meanwhile, the electronics category of online sales saw its first inflation in years. According to Adobe, online electronics prices have been experiencing deflation at a steady rate since 2014. But COVID-19 has led to electronics prices flattening. Computer prices even crept up in April due to rising demand. Plus, sales of audio mixers, microphones, microphone cables, and other audio equipment jumped 459% in April as would-be podcasters and various creatives set up their home studios, end quote. Ah, yeah. The podcasting from home effect. It's real. I'm kidding, but only slightly. Meanwhile, I found this interesting, too. Online apparel shopping increased 34%, but at the same time, April saw the largest monthly drop in apparel prices in more than five years. Why? Well, the Piece speculates, you know, folks don't have to dress up so much to go to work lately. Which, more on that in the next segment. I can tell you that there are endless discussions all over the place right now about the future of the workplace, the future of actually going to work. Like, now that we know most companies' operations can happen sort of fine, without anyone actually coming into the office, why then have anyone come into the office? And of course, I'm talking about you know, work that can be done in offices. I'm not talking about manufacturing and things like that. This is especially true here in New York City, the office capital of North America, where I was just reading an article from The Times this morning about major banks and even major real estate firms seriously reevaluating how much they really need the millions of square feet of office space that they currently have. Which, again, makes me wonder how the stock market can be so sanguine right now when we don't know the second-order effects of everything that's been happening yet. Like, you know, if people aren't buying clothes because they don't have to go into the office, or if there's a secular collapse in the commercial real estate market, both for offices and retail, wouldn't that seem like it would have an effect on the overall economy? Anyway, beating a dead horse there. What about tech, though? Like, we're largely in tech in the business of moving electrons around. Don't need offices to do that, right? I mean, I'm old enough that I can remember that one of the main reasons why you needed to rent an office in the first place was because you needed actual physical space to house the servers that you managed yourself on site, and none of us do that anymore. Then there's the whole idea that if you're a tech worker, And you don't need to go to the office, then you wouldn't need to live somewhere insanely expensive just to do your job, because you wouldn't have to worry about commuting somewhere expensive to do your job. I'm sure you've been seeing people kicking around ideas about moving to San Diego or Arizona or Iowa, just like I have. Well, Twitter weirdly seems to be leading on things like this. Like yesterday, Twitter told staff that they can continue to work from home essentially forever if they want. Like They can do so indefinitely even after the pandemic ends, though this new policy won't apply to all jobs. This is from our friend Alex Kentrowitz at BuzzFeed, quote, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey emailed employees on Tuesday telling them that they'd be allowed to work from home permanently, even after the coronavirus pandemic lockdown passes. Some jobs that require physical presence, such as maintaining servers, will still require employees to come in. We've been very thoughtful in how we've approached this from the time where we were one of the first companies to move to a work-from-home model, a Twitter spokesperson told BuzzFeed News. We'll continue to be and we'll continue to put the safety of our people and communities first, end quote. Dorsey had announced the company's intent to work in a distributed way before the virus, but the pandemic forced the company to move the timeline up. In his email, Dorsey said it's unlikely Twitter would open its offices before September and that business travel would be canceled until then as well, with very few exceptions. The company will also cancel all in-person events for the rest of the year and reassess its plan for 2021 later this year. Finally, Twitter upped its allowance for work-from-home supplies to $1,000 for all employees." End quote. Meanwhile, sources are telling Mark Gurman that Apple plans to return workers to offices sooner than most other tech companies, although staff will be coming back in distinct phases, quoting Mark Gurman in Bloomberg. The technology giant plans to bring back employees in phases to its offices, including the main Apple Park campus in Silicon Valley, over a few months, according to people familiar with the plan. The first phase, which includes staff members who can't work remotely or are facing challenges working from home, has already begun in some regions globally. It will expand to major offices across late May and early June, Apple has told staff. A second phase, scheduled to begin in July, will return even more employees to Apple's offices globally. In the U.S., the company has locations in cities including New York, Los Angeles, Austin, San Diego, and Boulder. The return to work timelines are fluid and may change, particularly given local and state stay-at-home orders, said the people who asked not to be identified talking about internal company matters. This week, senior Apple managers are beginning to inform employees if they are in the first phase or a later part of the process. During the first phase, employees will either be asked to work from the office regularly or only for certain periods depending on their role, the company has told staff. An Apple spokesperson declined to comment, end quote. That's all for today. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian MCC. If you're interested in buying a classified ad to tell your fellow listeners about a project that you're working on or launching or need to hire someone for, you can do so at ridehome.info slash classifieds. And if you want to subscribe to the ad free feed, it's the bottom link in the show notes today. Talk to you tomorrow.